to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to Taylor at miningstocks.com. That's the letter J, Taylor, at miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Back to turning hard times into good times. I am your host Jay Taylor, and I'm really delighted to have Peter Grandich back with me after our commercial break. Uh, Peter, at the at the break, we started uh, talking a little bit. You you explained why you believe that the United States has passed uh, the point of no return. Essentially, it's it breaks down to debt. We have lived beyond our means. All that stuff we put in warehouses. Of course, we have a, an empire that is in 140 some different countries around the world. We uh, we had um, uh, John Perkins on this show some time ago who talked about um, the, one of the reasons in his view that we went into Iraq was to uh, straighten out Saddam Hussein who wanted to get paid for his oil in euros. Some people believe that the United States military, as long as it can exist and be financed, and that's a question I would have for you, you know, given the, the fiscal dis- difficulties that we're having, uh, as long as the U.S. military can prevail, we can um, sort of, you know, enforce countries to play play by our rules. I know that you, you know, the Canadians to a certain extent are very unhappy about about the lumber um, tariffs and so forth. Um, any thoughts on that? Do you do you see the United States military being strong enough that we can just, you know, sort of enforce a U.S. dollar standard, a U.S. dollar, um, uh, you know, we use the U.S. dollar still as the world's reserve currency. Any thoughts on that? Jimmy Rogers is the one who I believe originally said this. I certainly wouldn't want to take credit, but I think it was one of the best pieces of advice I heard in decades. When asked about the future, about Americans, especially what's happening in China, uh, what best possible advice he could give, he responded and said, teach your children and grandchildren to speak Chinese. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was only a matter of time for China to truly take over the role in the world as the number one economic power. And with it, please, God, as an American, let's hand them this baton of supposedly being the world's policeman and say, now it's your responsibility. Thank you. Now, with that, they will need to have a military at least equal to ours and superior. And when you listen to military leaders, as I have, uh, they are not there yet in the Navy, which is critical because when you control the seas, you control commerce. Mm-hmm. But they're getting there. And any every other aspect, they're already there. So uh, I don't expect, and I think the current president we had really put the, the the knife in the back to end any hope of America maintaining its so-called superior military power. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there's a couple negatives with that. Obviously, we won't control our own destiny. It's kind of like England, Kane, if you can imagine how England was through the early uh, to mid-1900s was really the dominated military power around the world, and then they succumbed and literally had to borrow to stay afloat Mm -hmm. during World War II from the new military power, which is the United States. Mm -hmm. I suspect 
that in the coming years, uh, China will use the leverage of its debt that it's owed and its ability to be a cash flow cow uh, to make America more the way they think we should be. Now, remember, China doesn't want to wipe out the United States. It's not like terrorism that wants to see us die and go, you know, be blown up because we're such a viable country to buy the products and, and services that they will provide. But they certainly have a different view on how we should be. And uh, in recent years, they've used that. Uh, you don't see it every day because they're not obviously going to hold a press conference and tell you, but you can see by the actions they've taken. And what I've noticed interesting about China, which hasn't gotten a lot of press of late, is how much they moved during this European crisis to be a lender in Europe and mm-hmm. then get a foothold in Europe, too. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think America's day is an economic and military power. Economic is already over. Military will be coming to that point. Mm-hmm. And with that, uh, the only positive of that will be hopefully we won't have to be the world's policemen anymore and spend the incredible amount of money uh, doing so. Well, it's, it's interesting to note because China, of course, still holds a lot of U.S. debt. You were talking about, again, getting back to the day of reckoning, when uh, <clears throat> when people will realize that, um, you know, that, that the only people that are buying treasures anymore is is Ben Bernanke and his quantitative easing. Perhaps. And let me just interject here today mm-hmm. that that was something that got great concern of mine early the week, and I put up my blog because the the Federal Reserve this week passed China in dollar amounts of holding of government, U.S. government debt, mm. which is mind-boggling uh, that it's still hard. I don't know if the matter would be honest. Is, people say to you that don't really understand finances. Is, I don't understand something. How could we be the largest holder of our own debt? If we don't have money, we have to borrow it. How are we able to buy that debt? Yeah. And it's a good question. And, and that's, you know, that's monet, monetizing and you try to explain to people all that type of stuff and all. But... You know, Dave, uh, I've had two heroes uh, in recent years, uh, David Walker first, who mm-hmm. helped me get out of the way of the 2008 crisis. And now, as you said, at the, at the stop of the show that I made a change again and went to the bearish camp, mm-hmm. it's David Stockman uh, mm-hmm. who has helped me do that. And he has created a coin, which I think absolutely explains what the Fed is doing. He calls it financial heroin. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is. And so I want to interrupt to the point that if imagine this, we actually now own more of our own debt than even China owns of ours. That's incredible. That is incredible, and it's printing press money, which is uh, it, it, it in itself is a lie, Peter. And <clears throat> but that's very very interesting. And let, let me just ask you right now. We'll do it before we uh, say goodbye to you as well. But uh, you mentioned your blog. Tell our listeners what. That blog, where they can go to to read your blog. Uh, the blog is grandich dot com, g r a n d i c h dot com. That's pretty simple, grandich dot com. So you were mentioning that China doesn't want to get away from, uh, you know, they don't want to just stop buying treasuries right away. They don't want to pull the rug out from under us. They don't want our bond market to uh, to collapse immediately. What they do want to do is they want to keep commerce. They want to keep selling to America. But, of course, as you said, those warehouses are full, and Americans' credit cards are tapped out, and their ATM machines uh, that they use, their homes that they used as ATM machines are no longer there. Americans are broke. I saw unemployment. Well, while the unemployment numbers come down today, we're really, really looking at huge masses of unemployed people, people that are no longer counted as unemployed. 
because they get discouraged and they don't look anymore. I mean, uh, uh, so so things are not good on the demand side in America. Meantime, of course, China uh, is has a growing middle class and a growing number of people. So do you see China uh, eventually not needing the United States so much because they're generating their own internal demand? Well, I, I don't know if it would be not needing, but I think there's a very good historical point, which with, with the news of Egypt uh, in, in the news lately, mm-hmm. that is something to tie into what I think China has been doing and will continue to do to the United States. During the Eisenhower administration and the building of the Suez Canal, Britain and France uh, did not want to turn over that control to Egypt. And Russia started to send in at the time, don't forget, we were in the height of the Cold War during the Eisenhower with Russia, Russia sent in troops, and there was fear a real war was going to break out again. And Eisenhower announced that he was going to call in the debt that the French and the English owed, which mm-hmm. they, they just couldn't even pay then, so they would have, he literally would have forced France and England to go bankrupt. And four days later, Britain and France announced that they were leaving the Suez Canal. What I think China has done and will continue to do is it will use this debt as a leverage to, wa- to Washington more and more, and telling it what it thinks it should or shouldn't do. And I think that has already been underway. And as this financial heroin just continues to skyrocket out of control, America is going to look here as we talk today. We've thrown a trillion dollars in new debt in the last year. And today they announced that, you know what, we, we, we barely got an increase in, in increase in job numbers. Mm-hmm. And, by the way, we made a mistake. Almost 400,000 jobs that we thought were created last year really weren't. Mm. And for that, we went another trillion in debt. What do we get out of it? Yeah. It, it reminds me very much uh, of a replay of the 1930s, in fact, when Roosevelt's uh, Treasury Secretary, who was his close personal friend after eight years of the Roosevelt's administration, uh, said uh, our unemployment is as high as it was eight years ago, and we have all this debt to boot. It's a replay, it seems to me, Peter. So, um, do you see? Uh, do, to what extent do you see parallels with the 1930s here? Well, my view is this: I, I turned uh, outright bearish again. I haven't yet shorted the market because I thought this financial heroin could, could actually continue to make it a little bit higher here. But mm-hmm. what I what I what I think is what I think will play out is this is right now money managers and professionals think it, it's free. You know, all this money's being pumped. The market can't possibly go down during this, so I should keep buying. And it's kind of like a hot crap game. And, you know, even mm-hmm. though the house normally wins over time, for a while the dice are rolling the right way, and then suddenly there's seven out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that the pin that breaks it started to show itself today as we speak, and that is interest rates going up. The long mm-hmm. bond has broken some key support. And I think if the bond market starts to take gas and we see interest rates start to peak up, that's going to be the pin that's going to blow the stock market. So I don't know whether it's a day from now, Jay, a week, a month, or even a year, but eventually the stock market, which most people forget, is really a market where you could be part owner of a businesses. If we're in such debt and we can't service that, how does a typical business flourish? Well, if people realize it doesn't, it's going to be tougher then the market's going to go down. People are not going to pay as much for the average uh, to be part owner of a company. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think hold, the future holds for us. I don't know if we're there at that date and time when we reach the ultimate peak, but I know it's in the not-too-distant future in my heart of hearts. Mm-hmm. Well, we keep getting back to this issue of debt, Peter, and you mentioned the interest rates rising today. I'm looking at a at a 30-year bond chart right now going back, the U.S. Treasury going back, 
this goes back to 1988, but you will remember that the real bond market, bull market in bonds, started in about 1982 or so. Yes. When we come out of that, what was then until now the deepest recession we had since the Great Depression, when Paul Volcker put the brakes on the uh, on the issuance of money, <clears throat> excuse me, killed the uh, killed the inflation rate of the 1970s, and and then uh, we had a long period of prosperity uh, growth. Uh, equity prices rose, and the economy actually had some real growth in it. But as I look at this long-term bond market, Peter, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, we're looking at still a bull market, from what I can see. If you draw a line through the through the bottom of this 30-year bull uh, bond market, and I, I see what you're saying. I mean, we're well off the tops in the bond market, well off the lows in the interest rates, and we're, interest rates are starting to rise. But you look at a long-term trend; it's the bond market's still upward, and and then there was a, an acceleration. Uh, in the bond market and a reduction in interest rates very significantly when when uh, Lehman Brothers took place and when Bernanke started flooding the market with money, uh, but <clears throat> but still in all, uh, it seems to me we could have you know we could see interest rates go up quite a bit before I could be convinced that we're in a bear market for bonds yet. What well, you, you know, here's the interesting thing: the only thing that's survivable that, like you said, is still in doubt. Is where the Fed has been throwing the money at, and that's mm-hmm. you know in, in in the you know the, the Treasury side. If you look at other aspects of the bond market, it's or I mean the Muni bond market has been absolutely hit. We're mm-hmm. starting to see some serious hits on the junk bond market now, and of course we're seeing debt crisis in other sovereign countries' debt, only thanks to the Fed literally buying this stuff up, you know, at almost a hundred billion a month, has it not collapsed? But what's been key is think about it. The whole concept, this is what we were sold on. Remember, QE1 and QE2, this was the theory that Bernanke basically pasted. We put this money out here, the economy turns, the stock market gets better, people feel better, they spend more, and that makes the economy go. Mm-hmm. Well, interest rates right now are actually net higher than, on average, what the federal government has bought those bonds for. In mm-hmm. fact, you, next time you talk to one of those economists and all, uh, you know, John Williams, so forth, they'll tell you the Fed right now has a net loss. And mm-hmm. if it was, a, again, if it was a corporation, it would it'd be, be, be insolvent at this point mm-hmm. that it actually has a loss on what it's holding. And it just enacted some rule change that they can bury these losses through the Treasury that they don't have to show it. But it's like, it's like go back what Stockman says, this is financial heroin. It's being put up on stilts. It's not legitimate growth foundation that you can count mm-hmm. on, and it's going to come crumbling. I, I don't know the date, but I'm going to tell you we're going to have a conversation about yet another crisis, just like you know, in terms of how severe it got back just a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, here, here's, here's, the, here's the epitome of all this craziness. Two years ago, three years ago, we were told we had to bail out these Wall Street bankers and all because if we don't, the whole financial system, no one's going to have a job, and, and, and all this money was. And two years later, they're paying themselves record bonuses and making record monies. There's something wrong, and, and what's wrong is Americans have become complacent. Nobody's bitching. Sorry to use yeah, the word. it's true. Nobody's pulling out the hair. Wait a minute. If, a friend, if you had a friend, Jay, you grew up mm-hmm. with, right? And two years ago, he came to you and he said, man, my whole life, I can't even feed my kids. Can you help me? You mm-hmm. pay him, and then the next thing you know, you see him living in a big house, driving a big car, but, and mm-hmm. throwing money all around. Mm-hmm. You'd be insanely mad. Well, that's sure. what the federal government has just done with Wall Street, mm-hmm. and yet hardly anybody says anything. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think there's a great deal of ignorance out there about what makes an economy and what creates wealth, Peter. You were saying the theory was the animal spirits, to use a, a Keynesian terminology, that if we just feel good, we can spend money. Meantime, we're broke. I mean, feeling good and not having the ability to service your debt, I don't see how they go together, and yet they that's the condition we're in, and our government is creating money and out that, of nothing. Pretending. And that's the junkie, Jay. Yeah, that's, that's what the junkie. junkie is. And, and, and Bernanke is the pusher. And the, the, the QE2, which I'm going to tell you right now, here's a prediction. I'm sure I'm not the first that said it. There's going to be a QE3 if he can help it, and maybe even a QE4. Well, I think he's not denying that. Uh, and and, and the, the craziest thing is that he, that he and most Ph.D. economists don't have a good grasp of history. And that's why I've had other people on this show, like Bob Hoy, um, uh, I think Ian Gordon to a great extent, uh, Robert Prechter's been on the show, yourself too, have a sense of going back and looking at history and realizing uh, that you can, you know the, the the definition of a neurosis a neurosis is is people that can't learn from their past and learn from their mistakes and this certainly seems to be that we are a neurotic economy on 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 heroin right now it definitely seems to be the case well let's just uh, so the bond market Peter you're saying you don't know the time and the date but definitely this thing is going to crash and so you you see do you then see uh, a hyperinflationary probability in the future with a bond market crashing do you think do you think at some point uh, people are going to walk away or run away from the bond market interest rates hit the uh, you know just take off uh, like a rocket and then that throws us into a depression or how do you see this thing playing out see I, I think we're in a phase right now that we haven't spoken about in the 70s and most people haven't experienced so they don't uh, grasp it I, I believe we're in right now in stagflation and we have an economy that's sputtering. It's, you know, it's barely getting forward. It's only because all this uh, money from heaven is being printed and put in it. And outside of wages, uh, we're seeing inflation in, in, in a lot of key areas. Uh, it's true real estate is not seeing it yet, and wages is somewhat under control. But we're seeing inflation in places that really matters, food and energy. You know, I always hate when they put out that report and they say minus food and energy and inflation mm -hmm. with such and such. Well, I haven't learned to live without food and energy. So if the government can tell me how you can do that, then I won't be so worried. Uh, I, I don't know if it's hyperinflation, but I do know this, and, it, and it's, the, it's one of the key reasons why I continue to believe gold is in the mother of all global markets, mm -hmm. and that is all this money creation, which is not just here in the United States but around the world, is going to create inflation. Mm -hmm. And money creation is always, and I always underline, always long-term bullish for gold. Mm -hmm. Well, it certainly is. I, I do know, though, that, um, that I'm more comfortable with a deflation, with a deflationary, uh, an unstable deflationary monetary environment for gold mining companies where the cost of producing gold is going down. We saw that occur after the Lehman Brothers uh, decline. We saw the price of uh, the, the real price of gold, and I measure it uh, versus the Rogers Raw Material Fund, go from something like an ounce of gold buying 15% of the Rogers Fund to 44%. Now it's come back quite a bit to around 30, about around 39%, or no, about 20, around 30, 35%, somewhere in that range. But the point is that gold mining profits are doing very well. Uh, let's let's talk about gold a little bit. So you're bullish on gold in nominal terms. What about real terms? Well, you know, I, I've said this, and it's, it's <laughs> since the spring of 2003. Uh, gold, in my estimate, 
bull market can't begin to discuss that it's ending until it had a two in front of it. And the reason I took a two was, and there's some argument of exactly where it is in the two level, but that's where adjusted for inflation, the true high in gold lies. And I don't know what that number is today, 22, 23, 24, mm-hmm. okay, but, uh, and that in, in, a, in, in a mega bull market, which is no doubt gold's been in, and no matter what the constant permit bears and, and all the people that dislike gold for a variety of reasons through the financial industry and the media, the bottom line is gold has outperformed, certainly in the last decade, every basic main asset that people would try to own, bond mm-hmm. stocks, etc. But it has not yet gotten to its true inflation-adjusted high. Mm-hmm. And bull markets almost never end until markets get beyond their adjusted inflation highs from previous highs. Mm-hmm. So I, that's why I always thought it was a bit of a no-brainer that we'd have to get at least a two in front of it. Mm-hmm. Now, I know there's arguments for three, four, and five, and they're legitimate, but right now I've always felt that that was a, a legitimate, uh, not crazy, you know, gold bug type of feel, because, you know, I've been on other sides. I've been bearish at times yeah. over yeah. 20-something years for gold. Mm-hmm. I always haven't just said you have to own it. you got to... Mm-hmm buy dry food and cabins and all that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. So I think it's real, but I think the two other things that continue to drive it is we don't have large-scale central bank selling like we used to in the 80s and 90s. We're not going to see that. They're done. They can't even fill the Washington Accord uh, uh, loads. And also producers no longer cut their nose despite their face by being mm-hmm. large-scale hedgers selling mm-hmm. their gold forward. So all the all the makings for gold to continue to go higher are there. We've just gone through a, a, an extremely healthy and necessary consolidation. I mean, gold doubled in price in two years from the lows in 2008 as we entered 2011. Uh, physical demand continues to overwhelm whatever paper games that are played in the paper market. And uh, it's just, to my opinion, working higher. And one thing about I don't see a lot of people talking about it, forgive me if, if you do, uh, is that as much as costs may be lower than they were a year or two ago, it's still a very high cost to produce gold. So mm-hmm. it, gold, if it fell, let's just say you take some of these, you know, the, the, the perma bears, one in particular, I won't mention his name, mm-hmm. the no gold's going back to 800 or 600. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's going to get there because somewhere it's below 900, it's going to become not profitable for most producers to produce gold. Mm-hmm. And they will, you know, shut down mines and flip, mm-hmm. and so we're not going to see six, seven hundred dollar, you know, mm-hmm. gold again. You know, I start to think that thousand is is the floor, mm-hmm. and uh, you know that's the worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. And so I just see a market that uh, continues to work higher. Uh, I, I've never, in almost thirty years of being in this business, ever seen a market that after just one day of not being at its nominal height. People are bearish. What's wrong? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. what, what, is this the end? People just keep putting out all these forecasts. You know, gold is top. It's a bubble. Everywhere we go, I mean, the bullish sentiment a few days ago was some of the lowest bullish sentiments we've seen in years on gold. Mm-hmm. And yet, what is it? What was $100 away from its all-time nominal high? I mean, these are classic sentiment bullish indicators that just you just have to understand them, appreciate them, be glad that they came because now – uh, we've taken away the excess that was in the market at the beginning of the year. And one of the real positive things that I don't want to lose sight of at this point is, and I don't know if you noticed it, but 
unlike in the last couple of years when there was any weakness in gold, the gold shares just fell out of bed. They didn't fall out of bed this time. Yeah, in fact, they actually outperformed physical bullying in the last few weeks, which to me is saying that we're, we're getting to that final stage, which is going to be several years, mm-hmm. but that final stage where gold can and, and mining shares and all can get somewhat parabolic. So uh, I, I remain very, very bullish. Uh, I've used this opportunity, in fact, in the last couple of weeks to suggest people should increase now their physical exposure to gold because this correction, to me, was going to be the last one for quite some time. And I think as we you know, record this, I think we've seen the lows in gold, the 1310, and uh, mm-hmm. I think certainly before spring we could be making a new nominal high again. Well, Peter, I, I think your uh, your idea of uh, taking advantage of buying gold at this point in time makes a certain amount of sense as we're speaking here and as you were saying that. I was looking at the Central Gold Trust chart uh, that I get it from DecisionPoint.com, and it uh, it measures there the premium that you have to pay or the um, uh, you know the premium that you might have to pay to buy into this fund. And this fund holds gold. It's just a pure gold fund. It holds the physical gold. Ian McAvity, uh is behind this. Uh, it was as high as thirty thirty two percent premium you had to pay. Recently, it was a slight discount, and now I'm looking at something like a one and a half to two percent premium, which is not bad, uh, you know, from historical points of view. So it would seem to me that that uh, that chart is suggesting exactly what you're saying. There's a lot of sort of feel-goodness now with the stock market coming back. You, um, and so people are, are, you know, people that were sort of Johnny-come-lately gold gold uh, investors have, I think, sold out of their gold and going back into the stock market or whatever. But you have taken it. Let's just talk a little bit about your turn, uh, your turn to bearishness in the equity markets. And uh, so what do you see for the, let's say, the Dow and the popular indices right now? Well, you know, because this is such a unique period and, and this heroin is just flowing in, and I think Bernanke could even try to suggest to the government that we need to do more, uh, there could be a mood that somehow, even though it, this is that musical chair game that we used to play where there was always one more kid in a chair and they kept taking a chair and when a mm-hmm. person went out, money managers are going to think that they can still find themselves a seat and they're not going to bail out of the stock market. But I think it's getting so ridiculous fundamentally that, you know, here today as we talk, you know, despite all the jogging, I mean, weeks worth of how the job market was getting better and markets were rallying 150 points because unemployment claims weren't that bad and so forth, and boom, the number comes out here in February, and it's so below forecasted. And then quietly they announced that, oh, by the way, in the last year we, we thought there were 400,000 more jobs that really weren't there. Uh, I think it's going to be harder and harder for any manager with common sense to say that, wait a minute, the stock market's up 80%. I'm not getting any real bang in the economy despite all the hoopla. Maybe shares are starting to get fully priced. It's going to be time to take something off. So I think we're we're somewhere near the end of this great bear market rally, and that's what I've called it even when I was bullish on it. Uh, I think it's in the context of a much longer bear market. Uh, I I have said and continue to believe that the, this bear market won't end until uh, we retest the March 2009 lows. Mm-hmm. And I've attributed this market, Jay, and be interested in your views, uh, to somewhat like the Japanese market after peaking mm-hmm. in 89 mm-hmm. and years and years of predictions of the Japanese economy was going to be better, and they, too, went to just making money so cheap that it was actually less than zero interest rates mm-hmm. at a period of time. 
uh, and despite four different rallies where it rallied 70% or more from its low, mm-hmm. the Japanese market lost 70% over 20-something mm-hmm. years. Now, I don't think the U.S. is going to be as bad, but I think we are in that early stage of what the Japanese market saw, and despite significant rallies at times, net-net over the next several years, the U.S. stock market will be lower, in my view, than it is now. Mm. Do we take out those March lows, Peter? I don't know, but I think that's a direction to look for. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I started to think, and this is just a, a thought process I haven't suggested doing it, was, okay, you know what, we we got out at the last high, we got in at the low, all right, we started to think it was turning bearish, maybe we should take half of what we would apply to being short here, and if some reason how they somehow manage to get it back all the way to the old highs, implement that other half, because eventually, in your view, it's got to come back and retest cycle lows. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I'm not there yet. I haven't pulled the trigger. But I, I, I would say at this point, if you took Tara, my one love, she's 18, and said, Pete, either is the market 2,000 points higher and you get Tara back at 2,000 points lower, I would take the lower over the next few years. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's, we definitely are in, are in very interesting times, to say the least. Uh, I think the, uh, you know, the change uh, geopolitically that's bound to take place when the country squanders away its wealth, as, as America is in the process of doing, I'm afraid, the notion that we can have something without working for it, the Keynesian economic theory that has convinced us that all we need is good animal spirits to make us prosperous uh, and we don't have to work hard anymore it's a big lie peter and uh, big lies uh, encourage people to induce in uh, in fantasies and take drugs and do other things and that's that's unfortunately where our, our beloved country is heading I'm, I'm afraid we can do the best we can to try to change things but we really have to fend for ourselves we have to take care of our families and our loved ones first uh, I, I just need to ask you we only have a few more minutes left this is uh, just so much to talk to you about but what about uh, if you take the inflation view, which I believe is where you're going, uh, it, what about the base metals then? I would, I would be more active, more inclined to invest in energy, base metals, uh, you know, than I would be if, if I were to believe Ian Gordon or Ms. Shedlack, who's coming on next after you, uh, the deflationary side of things. What, what's your feeling about base metals and base metal stocks? And, 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 and perhaps energy stocks, too, if you care to comment briefly. Sure. I think what you have to realize is that America is no longer the economic engine that pulls the world. So while we will muddle in this horrific, and as you said, could be even a disinflation environment, uh, the, uh, good parts of the world will continue to grow. And, and they're growing because there's so many more people needing basic things. So I believe, as you just said, base metals are important. I think uh, energy, obviously, is going to be important, but things like water and agricultural. You know, there's a, there's a couple people that said it, and I can understand why, that the next world war will be fought over water mm-hmm. because of the tremendous water shortages mm-hmm. and now food shortages that we have. And so, so I think things related to agricultural, alternative energy, base metals, and, and I still think gold and silver because of the monetary fiscal things that are happening that we you know we spent a lot of time on today mm-hmm. i think they're all good and i certainly want to be in that area and one area which i positioned myself in the last year through my tracking list that's where i note the companies that i find attractive not in there they're not uh companies that i'm engaged by mm-hmm. has been overweighted in uranium and we're mm-hmm. seeing that payoff now mm-hmm. because the world needs more energy you know i recently talked to uh, a gentleman that's literally in charge of the electrical grid in the united states and mm-hmm. parts of it 
And he said, if you want to talk about roads going bad, he said, Peter, there's no way America is going to be able to continue to provide the power, the electricity mm. that the government needs because our, our our system is almost, in some sense, 50 or 100 years old. Wow. So a lot of money is going to have to be put into infrastructure just to keep providing us electricity. So mm. I, I'm with you. I, I think commodities in general, I think in particular agriculture, and, I, and I, like I said, I think the next big thing we're going to hear people talking about is water shortages. Peter, before I let you go, would you care to name one or two or three or four, uh, perhaps, of your favorite uh, picks at the moment? Uh, you know, I, I'll do that under the pretense that, A, if they work for me, they may not necessarily be good for others. I hate cookie-cutter type recommendations. Sure, sure, of course. Second, I have biases because either I own the stock and or they're a client, mm -hmm. uh, so, we, you know, we kind of talk our own book, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But, I, I, you know, there's a couple things happening now. Uh, Northern Dynasty, you know, I've been a favorite for a few years. It really has truly the only large-scale copper gold deposit in the world that's really still up for sale. It's 50% interest in the pebble. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the reasons the stock has more than doubled in the last couple months is that Ivanhoe basically went from being a potential takeover candidate to not based on the deal that Rio did with it. So the last mega deposit that's still out there for producers in all the mm. dynasty and management's been hinting that they're going to be putting it up for sale. I think a, I think a couple of companies that really uh, I wouldn't be afraid to come back and say that, you know, they really fell on their face uh, that have had uh, tremendous uh, drill success. One of late is Sunridge Gold, S mm -hmm. It's a It's a copper gold uh, deposit that, to me, I even went so far yesterday to name it as potentially the son of Beecher, you know, the big project that mm -hmm. Neptune has. Mm -hmm. I mean, 20% copper over great widths, you know, mm -hmm. on multiple holes. Mm -hmm. uh, even though the stock's up 30% in a couple of days, it's still not at its 52-week high. I think it has a lot of upside. Mm -hmm. And I'm always uh, partial to Hunt and Dickinson-type companies. I'm mm -hmm. engaged by them, but they, they are so much bigger and better than most everybody else in, in the resource business. Mm -hmm. And they have a company that I own a lot of shares in. I think it's still very cheap. It's a deposit that's growing. Drill results, again, have been great. Core Heatherdale Resources, HDR. I mean, I think one of the things that's going to separate this business and this, this next run-up is the pure grassroots plays are not going to get the bang that more advanced stage or companies mm -hmm. going from development into production will. Mm -hmm. And one last caveat, I think the Yukon Gold Rush will mm -hmm. be even bigger this year than it was last year. Mm. So, uh, you know, the, up there I, I have one company I'm heavily invested in, SilverQuest Resources, their mm -hmm. client. But whether it's Kamenak, ATC, and a couple others, I think the Yukon Gold Rush is going to make a lot of good noise this summer. Well, thank you, Peter. Unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to ask you uh, one more time, though, before we say goodbye, if you could just tell our listeners again, your blog site is Grandich.com. Yes. Yep, G-R-A-N-D-I-C-H.com. They can register there. They can get a daily email of whatever was put up on the blog that day, and uh, there's nothing, no course, and no information that you have to give up to get it. Fantastic. Peter, thank you so much for spending all this time with our listeners. Uh, it's really appreciated. Uh, you are a good, close, personal friend. I appreciate uh, all you've done for me, and uh, God's blessings to you. We'll talk to you very soon in the future, I hope. Thank you, Jay. Uh, don't go away, folks. We're going to have Ms. Shedlack back with us. Ms. Uh, will take a slightly different view, no doubt, than Peter on some of these things, but uh, that's what makes markets, different views, different ideas. Mish 
will no doubt talk to us about his deflationary views. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Mike Shedlack. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt, and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. Dasha Capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals, giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk. Rare earth elements are used in many industries, from aerospace and automotive to high-tech and green-tech. Dasha Capital is listed on the TSX.V in Toronto under the symbol DAC and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under symbol DCHAF. Please visit www.dashacapital.com to learn more. That's D-A-C-H-A-Capital.com. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by voice america business network the bottom line in business welcome to the human race some kind of love and ride i'll be sliding down i'll be gliding down try not to try too hard you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to jtaylor at miningstocks.com. 
That's the letter J, Taylor, at miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Michael Shedlack. Michael's been with us at least once, I think twice before. Uh, since 2005, Michael Mish, he's better known on the Internet, uh, Mish Shedlack has managed Sitka Pacific Capital, which has provided investors with an alternative to the passive management of mutual funds. The limited asset allocation models used by most financial advisors and the high fees of hedge funds. Sitka Pacific Capital Management specializes in absolute return investment strategies that pay special attention to risk and risk management. Uh, by applying his understanding of debt influ- uh, debt-induced f- in deflation, uh, under Michael's management, Sitka Pacific Capital enjoyed an 11.3% annual return, uh, while the S&P 500 lost 11.2%. Uh, we might ask Mike for an update on those numbers because I think I'm looking at, a, at an outdated script. Uh, but those returns have also been achieved with far less volatility uh, than the S&P. The fund invests in domestic stocks, foreign stocks, commodities, and yield uh, orientated funds and trust. It, in, uh, it invests in individual stocks as well as exchange-traded funds. Foreign stock investments are usually through funds, but SDRs are also used. Some hedging strategies are also used to reduce risk. Well, welcome back again, Mike, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. It's a pleasure to be back on the show, Jay. I do think this is my third time, possibly my fourth time. I'm not sure. Always a pleasure to be on uh, with you. And, of course, I, I see you uh, typically once or twice a year at the Gold Conference show in uh, Rolling Meadows, Illinois, the uh, Chicago uh, Natural Resources Conference. So that's always fun, too. Yeah, in fact, I think we've got one coming up in the middle of March sometime that I'm uh, scheduled to go to. I've, I've generally been going only once. I, I think you're living in the backyard there that you go to both of them. It's always a nice little conference, and uh, people should check it out. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's about uh, just about 40 minutes here from my house, uh, so that's that's real nice. Nonetheless, I stay there at the hotel to be able to talk with people uh, uh, for the first uh, fr- Friday night. You know, people are always up uh uh, drinking, and I'm certainly part of that crew, so anyone's welcome to buy me a drink. First, a little bit of a correction here about Sitka. Yeah. Um, I'm an investment advisor rep for Sitka. I'm not the one okay. that makes the uh, investment manager decisions. My partner, Brian McCauley, does. However, we see eye-to-eye on you know the inflation, deflation, inflation debate, uh, gold, and the advisability of holding that, and a whole gamut of other things. But I cannot technically myself claim... Uh, credit for our performance. That goes to my partner. He's done a, a, a pretty good job. Uh, we had positive returns in uh, uh, 2008 without being net short and uh, without using leverage. I think that's pretty good. Uh, 2009, we were plus 20. Uh, 2010, we underperformed the market here. Uh, it's just been on a tear recently. We're uh, up, uh, I don't have the final number here in front of me, somewhere between 5 and 6 percent. Through the third quarter, we were right in line with the market. Um, Bernanke's QE2 really blasted the market higher. We did not participate in that. Uh, we look at things from a risk management perspective, and uh, right now we see you know mountains of risk. When it matters, we don't know. But you know, looking back, you know, we, we saw the same kinds of actions in the stock market in regards to breath and to cart, which people chasing the markets. We saw in 2007, 
And, you know, but when it matters, Jay, you know, we don't know. All I know is uh, I don't like and we don't like what we see here in terms of risk. So we're uh, uh, high in cash with a lot of hedges right now. Well, when it matters, of course, is the issue, and it's difficult. You know, it's very difficult. I know that Chen Lin, who's a partner of mine, uh, takes the view that we've got some more uh, QE2 st uh, stimulated prices, asset bubbles, if you will, and Chen sees them definitely as bubbles, not as sustainable growth, but as, but as bubbles. So we want to get into the discussion of bubbles for sure. I just want to ask you, though, before we go any further, those returns. Well, I guess you just clarified the returns. So, you, you know, I think what people forget sometimes, you can have spectacular returns on the upside and then lose half of it or more with a Lehman Brothers type of collapse. And that certainly happened to a lot of people. So what really matters is the long term, you know, like who wins the race, the hare or the tortoise, mm -hmm. right? Well, for the last five years, we're, uh, our annualized rate of return is something like 11% a year. And um, given, given that we didn't short in 2008 and we don't use leverage, you know, those are pretty good returns, Jay. Uh, sure. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of hedge funds and the like that um, have done a lot better. You know, what, you know, Paulson himself made, what, $5 billion or something. Mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. you know, those aren't open to all investors. Those are hedge funds. And they do have um, uh, pretty substantial swings. You know, uh, uh, a lot of people simply don't understand. You know, uh, investing in a market that's up 30% one month, down 20% the next month, up 50%, and then down 20%. Uh, uh, we're looking um, more at what's sustainable in a uh, uh, over a long-term period of time trying to minimize risk over that period of time. It's not the only way of doing things, but um, it's uh, certainly better than the well-advertised model of long-term buy and hold, throw it into the markets. You know, you can't time it. All the other nonsense that, that you hear, you know, from people who have a vested interest in telling you that just mm -hmm. because they want to manage your funds and not have you move them. Mm -hmm. For sure. Well, and, and again, I think one of the issues there with your 11% return is volatility. So there's that risk aspect. If you've got a fund that's jumping all over the place, your returns are all over the place, you know, you might have to sell one day. And when you have to sell, those returns happen to be down. So a stable fund, you know, there's something to be said for uh, lower volatility and less risk. Well, Mike, I'd like to ask you, let's, let's get right into this deflation issue. You are renowned as a deflationist for sure. So what do you see now here? You could, it was easy to see deflation after Lehman Brothers, after the decline that took us through the equity market through March of 2009. Uh, and, and, you know, commodity prices collapsed. We had the, the debt markets implode, and that impacted all of the real economy in a very real way. And now, though, we see with all of this huge amount of stimulus money pumped into the system, commodity prices are back up, copper's hitting new highs, energy prices are getting up around... Oil was up around 90 bucks. Gold, uh, you know, everything is really on the on a tear. Silver is up. Uh, food prices are causing problems around the world. What do you say to those that say, "Ah, we've we've worked our way through deflation, and now we've cleansed the system, and now we're on to sustainable growth"? Well, I don't think we have. I mean, one has to look at um, uh, not just growth in uh, commodity prices here, one has to look at this from an aspect of, of what, well, first off, what is inflation and deflation? 
I think inflation, my definition that I use, is inflation is uh, expansion of money supply and credit. And I believe it's important to mark credit to market. We'll talk about that. And deflation is the opposite, and that contraction in money supply and credit, again, with credit to uh, mark to market. If you look at the credit markets in the United States, they've gone nowhere. Uh, 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 credit card buying, uh, borrowing, commercial loans, all of that, you know, is, is we're still in a, a credit deflation. People are actually stopped using their credit cards. They're going more towards debit cards. You know, they're very concerned ab- about paying uh, enormously high interest rates. We're also seeing defaults on credit cards, and of course we're still seeing more foreclosures and defaults in housing. All of those are part of the deflationary environment. Yet other uh, uh, aspects of the market certainly are you know, uh, inflationary. There's no question about it. I think we are in a period of inflation here. Uh, um, but my model said that we would go in and out of deflation over a period of years. So I see no reason to change that, to change that model. At some point, perhaps this year, you know, uh, and we're seeing huge changes in Congress in terms of, of, you know, the rate of growth of government spending going forward. Uh, uh, is is about ready to uh, shrink, and uh, but you know you have to contrast that. If you're looking for inflation, where do you see it? Uh, uh, inflation in China, based off of credit expansion, we're seeing twenty five, thirty five percent annualized rate of growth in uh, credit expansion in China. Yet its GDP is growing 9 to 10% a year. That means the credit ex- is expanding in China three times faster than their GDP growth. And all of that's going into property bubbles. It's, it's going into commodity speculation. You've got pig farmers in China hoarding copper. You have you know, all kinds of other imbalances here in the global economy that have not been fixed. And uh, at some point, China is going to have to address those. And when they do, I think the bloom, uh, uh, at least over a shorter or intermediate term, is going to come off of, of, of commodity prices. So uh, uh, if China slows, and, and I think at some point, either they're going to slow voluntarily or the market is going to force them to slow, just as we saw uh, market uh, forces impact Greece, Spain, Portugal, Ireland, you know, we're going to see the same thing, you know, happen to China. Now, um, Michael Pettis had, a, had an interesting email um, uh, just the other day at China Financial Markets. You know, he, uh, I always am interested in what uh, he has to say. There's a, there's a link to uh, China Financial Markets on my blog, but uh, uh, he put out uh, a little note that we're going to have a leadership change in China uh, in 2012. So, you know, perhaps they start addressing... Uh, these concerns then, actually I think they're going to have to, but the question in my mind is, does the market take its, will the market wait? Will the market wait to 2012? And we asked the same question, you know, about Greece, and uh, at, at one point the answer was, no, the markets are not going to wait, and they didn't wait for Ireland either. Uh, the imbalances are still there in Europe, so we've got these uh, uh, imbalances in Europe, we've got imbalances in China, We've got imbalances in the United States that, that, that people don't even see if they're just looking at the financial markets. The stock markets is, has uh, certainly 
put on a spectacular rally here that continue. I mean, every day, another new high. Yet you look at, at job growth, you, you look at, at wages, and you look at real wages, you know, they're not keeping up. And so what happens in the United States when the, uh, uh, when the stimulus stops? Uh, you know, I, 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 it's not, by no means clear that the stock market's going to keep going up, even if the stimulus continues. Well, I certainly want to get to the stock market. I know you wrote some very interesting things recently on your blog about that, but just, just a minute more on China, perhaps. What you're saying very much confirms what our Chen Lin, who's a, my partner and on this show frequently says. Chen says that a lot of companies in China have found they can't make money doing what they're in business to do, so they started speculating uh, in the commodity markets. And and, uh, and and Chen, for one, is you know one that believes we're in a heck of a bubble, but he believes that it can go uh, expects it can go a little longer, but it gets back to this whole issue of how do you know when the market is going to turn? Because if we could only know that, Mike, we could play the long side and then just get out in time and play the short side and, and make a, a lot of money. But nobody knows that, do they? No, nobody knows that. And, 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 and it's funny to see all these people go on, you know, Business Insider or wherever and saying, well, the, the market's going to go up from here. Well, you know, they don't know, and I don't know either. Uh, you know, at, but at least we know that we don't know, and uh, in a sense, it's it's frustrating here, sort of sitting on the sidelines, you know, watching the markets, you know, make you know higher and higher highs. But my concern is avoiding the next big decline, not getting every last penny out of this rally. The only way to get every penny out of the, the rally is to be 100% invested 100% of the time. You know, you know, at, at some point, you know, uh, uh, look at it this way. You know, there's going to be another dip, and so far every dip's been bought. So someone's going to, you know, the market's going to dip 10%. Someone's going to buy it. Then it's going to dip another 10%. Oh, the, you know, this is the dip to buy. And, you know, dip buyers were, were wrong for a year and a half in 2008. Or uh, mm-hmm. actually, starting in late 2007. So uh, uh, at some point, I think we're going to see those conditions again. When I don't know, but uh, uh, in the meantime, I don't know. Uh, uh, God bless the dip buyers, I guess, because their strategy is <laughs> working. Uh, China raised their interest rates today um, a quarter of a percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the commodity markets did come back a bit, Mike. Do you think this could be the start? Is you, you expect so? You're, what you're saying is China might. It, it might be induced by these policy moves, or it could just be that the markets uh, decide enough is enough and take it down no matter what. I, I think the latter is likely, actually, the, because I don't see that China is going to uh, uh, voluntarily address what they want to do. They, uh, it's not that China couldn't do it. I, you know, look at it this way: if, if China wants to, you know, increase investment, you know, all the banks, have, all China, you know, the central bank has to do is just to say lend. You know, it's a completely different situation here in the United States. You know, you know, Bernanke, you know, they're screaming, and Congress is screaming. You know, the, you know, the banks here in the United States aren't lending. Actually, they're they're being prudent for the first time in decades, if you ask me. You know, they're insisting that before they lend, that uh, uh, that they have creditworthy customers. You know, my gosh, and and now we've got. You know, the, the, the Fed screaming at them, well, not so much the Fed, but, but more so Congress, that, 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 that banks aren't lending. But certainly Bernanke does want, 
you know, uh, credit to expand. You know, contrast that with China. And the central banks tells its banks to lend. They're going to lend. You know, mm-hmm. they're gonna, they'll, you know, it doesn't have to make any sense. And, in fact, it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they keep building more and more residential and commercial real estate properties that no one lives in. They've got mm-hmm. entire vacant cities over there, whole vacant malls. You know, it's, it's phenomenal the amount of money that's poured into malinvestments in China. And that, in turn, you know, has is, is, is caused this huge demand for copper, for concrete, for steel. You know, that's why those prices are going up. So what happens when China slows? You know, you know they go from this... Uh, uh, investment-driven model to some other to some other sort of driven model of growth. I don't know exactly what that is. You know, consumer spending. I, I think they would they would hope to, but you know, how can you get to that when wages in China are are so low? So mm-hmm. you know, these are massive imbalances here, and the only the question is, you know, does you know can China stay? on this uh, 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 10% path. Well, they can. You know, the, the, the government can just say, you know, this is our growth target. We're going to hit and come hell or high water. But, you know, they're going to have to deal with the inflationary aspects of it, the rising real estate prices and the rising food prices. Something's got to give, you know, you know, which is it? It's either China's growth or it's, or, or it's credit expansion. Uh, 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 I think the market's going to, Slowly start reining in on some of this credit expansion. You know, uh, credit stops expanding at, at such and such a rate. China uh, at the current rate, and China starts uh, uh, hiking in these series of baby steps. That can weigh on the market. Even you know, if if China's GDP just you know shrinks slightly, say to eight percent. Well, Mike, we we only have about thirty seconds or so to go here before we have to take a break, but. I think what you're talking about here uh, are the problems of a planned economy. You're mentioning the cities that are being built without people living there. Why is that happening? That's happening because it wasn't a demand-driven situation. It was a planned economy. We in the United States, unfortunately, in my view, are moving much closer to that, more on the monetary policy. You know, from a monetary perspective, Bernanke decides to create money out of nothing. That is a statist, a, uh, a planned economy uh, that, is, that is most important. We're going to have Jeff Deist on with us the next segment, uh, not the next segment, but later in this, hour, in this third hour of today's show. Jeff is going to be talking about his boss's plans to start questioning the Fed and the Fed's, uh, ma- the malinvestment that occurs, very similar to what Mike is talking about in the United States. Mike, we're going to have to go to a station break right now, to a commercial break, and when we come back, there's so, so much more to talk to you about. We want to get the state governments. We want to talk eventually about the stock market, but I'd like to first talk about the underlying economic problems that you see in the U.S., the huge debt that cannot be repaid. Uh, And so we're going to talk to you more about that and then get to the stock market, your predictions for stocks and gold going forward. Folks, don't go away. We'll be right back with Mike Shedlack at the top of the hour. <laughs> 